What do you do when life gets hard? When you face obstacles, setbacks, or opposition? Uh, When things don't turn out the way that you had hoped or dreamed? When you experience loss or illness or hurt or even despair? Every one of us experiences times like these. And maybe this is where you find yourself as you sit here this morning. And maybe you've wrestled with these questions. Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? How do I move on from this? Or how long will this last? And for those of us who follow Jesus, uh, we may ask some other questions like, where is God in the midst of this? Or, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Maybe you've blamed God. Or maybe when you made the decision to follow Jesus, someone told you, when you do this, and if you have enough faith, nothing bad will ever happen to you. In fact, life will get easier, but then bad stuff still happens. Life is still hard. Is this a failure of God's plan? What if these times or seasons are not a failure of God's plan or in the way of God's plan, but what if they are a part of God's plan? James, Jesus' half-brother, said in one of the letters that he wrote uh, to the church that we should consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds because of what it produces in us. Perseverance and maturity. God is working through trials. If you're joining us today for the first time, we have spent this year in the New Testament book of Acts, um, which tells the origin story of the church. Uh, In this book, we've seen the Holy Spirit empower a small group of men and women with a message and a mission. The message is the gospel, which the gospel is that the fact that, that God in the person of Jesus has come, took on flesh to teach us and show us how to live, and then he willingly died a death that we deserve to pay a debt that we owed on a cross so that we would have the opportunity for a restored relationship with God. And then he rose from the grave, and he gives us this hope of life after this life. And the mission was for us to go, for for anybody who calls Jesus Lord, to go and share this message with everyone, to teach and show them how to follow Jesus with our lives. In other words, to make disciples. And, And this group did this. And as a result, tens of thousands are now empowered by the Holy Spirit and are a part of this rapidly growing movement of Jesus followers. 
And we've spent the past couple of weeks, actually the past couple of months, following the journeys of a man named Paul, who himself at one point imprisoned and killed Jesus' followers, but he himself now is one. And he and some others have gone basically to most of the known world to share this message and fulfilling this mission. And as we come to the last section of this book that we have been in of Acts, the narrative kind of shifts. And we're going to see Paul willingly go to places and put himself in circumstances where he knew life was going to be hard. And the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, why? Why does Paul do this? And through this, I want us also to see how we should respond to the hard seasons of life. We've called this final series in Acts, Through the Valley. In many cultures and in literature, valleys symbolize lows in life, the hard times, the places and situations in life you don't want to be in. And this morning, uh, we're going to, and really for the next several weeks, we're going to be going through pretty large sections in Acts. And because we believe that what is written here is more important than what we say about it, uh, we're going to read through this together. So my encouragement this morning is, please lean into what is written and listen to what is being said. And here we find that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21. If you are new with us, we have these Acts journals that you're welcome to uh, take. They're in the seats in front of you if we still have a few around. Uh, we're going to be on page 122. So we're in Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And when we, this is Paul, this is Luke, the guy who wrote Acts, um, and those who are traveling with him had parted. They had just left the Ephesian leaders had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. Now he's on his way to Jerusalem, that's his destination. For there the ship was to unload the cargo, and having sought out the disciples, those who were following Jesus, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. So, so once again, we see this group of people that Paul spends seven days with warn Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen to him. But he continues on this journey anyway. And I think what's really interesting about this time here in Tyre is the fact that you see almost this parallel to what we saw with the Ephesian church leaders where this group of people love Paul so much, they spend time, they're begging him not to go, and then they have this moment as he's finally leaving them where they kind of kneel and pray together. Verse 7, when 
we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. Now, when it says one of the seven with Philip, you remember back, if you weren't with us, there was a time where the apostles were really struggling with what to do with some of the conflict that was arising in the church. And so what they had done is they appointed seven men to oversee the distribution of food to widows. Philip was one of those. Also, we heard about Philip when he shared Jesus with the Ethiopian eunuch. And, 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 and this group stays with them, and he had four, daughter, four unmarried daughters. Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And if you've been with us for a while, you, the name Agabus may ring a bell. And in Acts chapter 11, we saw where Agabus had come and predicted a famine that came true. And coming... To us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answers, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Paul is warned once again, do not go to Jerusalem. And now he's even given more specific details to this man named Agabus about what he can expect. Why does Paul do this? I think the first reason that we see that Paul does this is because Paul trusts God. Paul trusts God. Paul doesn't trust that God will keep bad things from happening to him, he knows what's going to happen to him. Paul trusts that regardless of what happens, God is with him, and it's all part of God's plan. You see, Paul trusts God, and it's this trust that allows him to move forward into what he will face. Paul trusts who God is, that God is good, and that God is perfect, and that God is holy, and that God has made promises that God always keeps. Like, that's what Paul trusts. Paul also trusts in God's plan. Even when he doesn't know all of the specifics and doesn't know what the outcome is ultimately going to be, like what the impact of Paul is going to have, Paul trusts God. So my question, my first question to wrestle with this morning is, where do you place your trust when you're in the valley? Where do you place your trust? Do, do you put your trust in your situation, improving or the difficulty going away? 
The cure will come. He or she will return. I'll find the right person soon. I'll get a different job. My loneliness will end. This dark place I'm in will soon turn brighter. You, you put your trust in the advice of others? Or, or do you just wall up and bury your head and trust that it will just pass? You see, it's in the valley that our faith is deepened and our trust grows because valleys strip away any illusion that we may have held of control. Anything that we control anything, and as a consequence, we have to put our trust somewhere. And my question is, why would we put our trust in the one who controls all things? And, that, and, and also trust the promise that he is always with us. Listen, listen to this. David writes in Psalm 23, 4, he says, even though, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I, I won't be afraid, for you are close beside me. Romans 8, 31 says this, if God is for us, who can stand against us? And so when you find yourself in the valley, or even before you walk into the valley, put your trust in the only one who can sustain you. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. Again, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is also the leader of this church in Jerusalem. And and probably has influence on other churches as well. And all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Can you imagine what this meeting was like? I mean, Paul is sitting there and he's retelling all of the different things that God has done, that he's seen God do in the lives of all of these different places that he's gone. He's probably retelling not just the good things, but also some of the challenges that he's faced. And when they heard it, when this group of elders and, and, and James, the leader of the church, when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believe. So they basically kind of share their own story. Like God has done some amazing things here in Jerusalem. There are thousands, I mean, tens of thousands of Jews that are now following Jesus in Jerusalem. But then he gives them this. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, in other words, told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. This is a lie. This is not what Paul has been teaching the Jewish people. And so they ask the question, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. These groups of people that are opposed to what, what Paul, they think that Paul has been teaching these things to the Jewish people. Do, theref, theref, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself um, along with them and pay their expenses so that, they're, they, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. 
In other words, what he's doing, and I won't go into all the details of why he's doing this, but what he's doing is basically saying, just prove him wrong by your actions. Like, just show him that you're still living under the law. But as for the Gentiles, in other words, for the, all the people that you have that you've shared Jesus with and are now following Jesus, who have believed we have sent a letter. This is the same letter that we read about in Acts chapter 15. We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So he basically does exactly what this council has asked them to do. Why is Paul in Jerusalem? Because Paul brings encouragement. Paul brings them encouragement. We talked about this last week that one of the reasons that Paul had gone back through Macedonia and into Greece and, 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 and did that kind of tour, one of the reasons he did it, was, it wasn't just to encourage the churches, but it was also to take up an offering because he was going to bring money back to help the poor in Jerusalem. You have to realize that one of the, one of the most persecuted places in the church at that time was happening in Jerusalem. The effects of people following Jesus was devastating for them. It was a, it, sometimes it was a life or death choice. It was certainly, if they joined this movement of Jesus followers, they were going to be disowned by the community of people that they depended on. Sometimes they were walking away from family members or, or sources of income. And so it created this great need in the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul has taken up this money from all of these churches that he's done in order to bless, this, bless the church of Jerusalem to encourage them. But he doesn't just do this like with the money. He also does this by sharing about all of the difference that God has made is making. It's not like what you're doing here in Jerusalem matters because it's mattering all across this world. And he shares what he's experienced, both the good times, so they can celebrate what God has done. But he also shares the hard times to realize that they're not alone in their suffering. And they get encouraged from both. And it's good to remember and reflect on what God has done, both in the good times and the hard times. So my second question I want to ask you, in the, in the midst of hard times, what do you reflect on when you're in the valley? Like, what do you reflect on when you're in the valley? When you're in the valley, it's easy to stay focused on and reflect on your circumstance, your pain or your hurt. You, you can actually get stuck in that. What, what would happen if you shifted your focus or what you reflected on? What, what if you reflected on, on the ways that God has blessed you? Or, or, or how you have seen God move in your life before, like both in good times and in hard times? Or what if you reflected on those that God has put into your life, like the people that he's blessed you with, like your friends and your family, your coworkers? What if you reflected on just how much God loves you? But don't, don't miss what's happening to Paul in this too. I mean, Paul has come to give this great encouragement. And what happens next? Like he hears that lies are being spread about him, right? Like instantly. Like you're being lied about. I don't know about you, but like one of the most like devastating things that happens is when you hear somebody tell a lie about you. Like, that's really hard to get past sometimes. 
And sometimes when we're in their valley, it's easy for us to listen to the lies. You don't matter. You'll never get it together. You are hopeless. Then it is to reflect on the truth of how God sees you. Don't listen to the lies. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, and this is this time of purification that Paul's going through in order to demonstrate that he is not like just stepped away from the Jewish practices. The Jews from Asia, again, this is where, this is Ephesus. This is where we spent some time looking at. Like these men and these people have followed Paul down on his journey and have come from Ephesus. These Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Again, lies. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defied this, defiled this holy place. For they had previously, previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him in the temple, which he never had done. Then all the city was stirred up, and all the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they came, they were seeking to kill him. And word came to the tribune. The tribune would have been the commander of, like the military commander of the troops in Jerusalem, of the cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when, they, and when they, this crowd that's like mobbed around Paul, when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. It's kind of like that, like that playground scene, like kids are in a fight and the teacher comes out and then everyone is kind of like, like, oh, we weren't doing anything. <laughs> and then insult to injury here, right? Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul, arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Sound familiar? Agabus' prophecy. He, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Because obviously the guy getting beat up was at fault. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. This would have been the place that the troops would have been stationed. And when he came to the steps... He was actually carried up by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. I mean, this crowd is still trying to tear into Paul, and they're trying to protect him, at least get him into this barracks. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? The tribune asked him, do you know Greek? And then this is the assumption that the, the tribune has made about who Paul is. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So re there had been this person that stirred up some trouble in Jerusalem and, and, and then he had escaped and, and the tribune is assuming Paul is that guy. Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in, in, in Sicilia and, and a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, now, now just pause there for a minute. Think about this scene. And, and tell me that the Holy Spirit's not involved in this, right? 
I mean, here you have a guy that just basically almost got torn to shred by the crowd. They, they have to actually, like, physically carry him because he's, he, the, the crowd still wants to tear him apart. They get him to the steps of the barrack. Paul asks, hey, can I talk to this hostile crowd? And the tribune thinks, yeah, this is a great idea. Paul standing on the steps, motions with his hand to address the people. And there was a great hush. He addressed them in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And what we're going to hear really is not what I would call a defense. Because the defense that Paul would make was basically say, You know what, that dude Trophimus, he wasn't really with me in the temple. And you know what, all of these lies about the fact that I'm telling Jewish people not to be circumcised or circumcise their kids or not follow the law, like those things are lies too. You can go back and check the record. I've never said any of that stuff. Like that would be a normal defense for us, right? But Paul's defense, Paul's defense is basically what he's going to do is he's going to point people to Jesus. He just points people to Jesus. Acts 22 verse 2. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. It's not by mistake that Paul chose his Hebrew to talk to them because most of the people there would have either speak in Greek or Aramaic. They would have understand Aramaic. Greek, Hebrew wasn't really spoken very broadly, but it was close to Hebrew, so they had to get quiet just to hear what he was saying. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in the city. In this city, in other words, I, was, I, I lived here in Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, he was a very highly respected rabbi. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way. Again, another reference to this, what, what they call Jesus followers. To the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem, in bonds to, Jerusalem to be punished. He's going to recount what we've already heard about his conversion story, but this is Paul's version of it. Like we're hearing from Paul what happened. And as I was on my way to draw near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting him? If you think that the voice had just got Paul's name wrong, that was really Paul's name before it was changed to Paul. And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is, supposed, that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me. And they came to, into Damascus, and one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear, his vo hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, 
Wash away your sin, calling on his name. And when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him say to me, this is Jesus, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing and proving and watching over the the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's as far as it gets. Up to this word, they listened to him. And they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They didn't get upset at Jesus. They got upset at the word Gentiles. And he tells them this story about how he came to know Jesus and he wants to share more, but just the mention of the word Gentile sends them sideways. Why is Paul in Jerusalem? Because Paul has been deeply loved. Because Paul has been deeply loved. Paul has experienced the incredible love of Jesus And because he has experienced this transformational, incredible love for Jesus, he wants nothing more for them, for this Jewish crowd, to also experience this themselves. He explains his heart and passion for this group of people when he writes to the Romans. He he writes in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, for those of my own race, the people of Israel. Basically, if you catch what Paul's saying there, basically he's saying, I would give up my relationship with Jesus and the hope that I have if the people of Israel would come to know him. That's powerful. That's a deep love that can only be brought on by a deep love of of someone who's been loved themselves. And my last question for us this morning to wrestle with is, who do you remember when you're in the valley? Who do you remember when you're in the valley? Do you remember how much you're loved? Do you remember what Jesus has done for you? Do you remember that you have been given a new identity, and that your circumstances, your past, whatever you're going through doesn't define you anymore. Verse 23, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, which is just a really weird thing to do, The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. That doesn't sound fun. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen uncondemned? (laughs) When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, Hey, I'm a citizen by birth. Like, 
You're a second-class citizen. Like, I'm, I'm the real deal, dude. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, and he had bound him. This was a serious offense. It doesn't seem serious to us. This was a serious offense. And here we see an example of how even in the midst of the valley, God protects Paul. Paul is probably in his 50s, maybe even close to 60 now, and that, that would be the equivalent of being really, really old today. And he's seen a lot. He's been through a lot. He's been almost stoned to death. He's been beaten multiple times. He's walked over, like, thousands of miles. He, he's not in great shape, right? And this flogging probably would have been his demise. But God had worked through history to create this status that allowed Paul to escape so that Paul could continue to tell the story of Jesus. I've spent the last six and a half years, I, as I reflected back, as I was going through this this morning, I think in the last six and a half years, I've spent more time in the valley than I have anywhere else. This, this message, like, connects with me. I, I don't know where I would be if it wasn't for where I put my trust, of where God leads my reflections and thoughts, and, and the fact that I know that God deeply loves me. If, if you're in the valley this morning, I want you to know that you, you can trust God and that you are more loved than you feel right now. Take time to reflect, to, to read and to meditate on who God is and what he has done for you already. Know, know that God is with you. And reach out to someone. Like, don't go this alone. Don't do this by yourself. And, and to any, everyone else who may not be in the valley at this moment, know that Paul already had this in mind before he went into the valley. Like, this was Paul's mindset before he steps into the valley. We, we need to continually do this the same, even in those times that we're not in the valley. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for um, the fact that you promise that you are with us. Father, that you are, you are greater than um, our suffering. You are greater than the valley. And Father, we can know that you are good and your ways are perfect and that your plan is always perfect. And so, Father, I pray that you would just continue to refine us to be more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.